my money. Money. I get money from you. Money in the bank. Young money. Money, 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 money. It's the rich man's blood. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. World-renowned financial advisor and best-selling author Barry James Dyke will arm you with the truth. This is The Economic Warrior. Please note, the opinions expressed on this show are of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily of Portsmouth Community Radio, its members, or board of trustees. And good afternoon, everyone. It's a beautiful day here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Kind of an Indian summer day, Will, huh? Yeah, it's nice and warm. Yeah, it's nice and warm, and uh, the windows are open, and uh, I'll take it as long as I can get it. Uh, uh, but anyhow, we have a wonderful um, uh, guest this after, uh, today, around uh, quarter past the hour, Leon Cooperman, who runs Omega Advisors uh, out of New York City, and we're going to talk to him about uh, his charitable efforts and uh, uh, the you know the Cooperman Scholars Program and the various charities he's supporting. He's going to mm-hmm. give it away, Will. We're going to talk about how he's giving away his money. Yeah, he's one of the most uh, successful investors ever, right? Yeah, he's a value investor, and we'll talk Mm -hmm. about that. And a guy of humble beginnings, and uh, he grew up in the South Bronx, and, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, So you didn't forget that. No, no. So, anyhow, so we, you know, he's doing a good thing. So, a lot of wealthy people really don't uh, kind of take a a pass on it. But so we're going to talk about. Uh, Lee Cooperman, and he's a really nice guy, very, very bright guy, and um, what him and his wife and their family are doing. So this show, Lee, is really tied to inspire great capitalism. And uh, um, could you could you please tell our audience a little bit about your background? You're kind of a, st- um, a prime example of the American dream. Could you tell us a little bit? Very, very much so. Very much so. You know, I, I guess if you're familiar with the uh, individual Horatio Alger, uh, you know, kind of they say this guy's an Horatio Alger story. He's, uh, I'm first generation in my family, born in America, first generation to go to college, uh, started my career in Wall Street uh, with a negative net worth, uh, basically uh, uh, had a National Defense Education Act student loan, no money in the bank, six-month-old child, and uh, I've had a great run of luck and hard work for the last 50 years, and uh, uh, have no complaints. My education was largely public school space. I went to grade school in the Bronx, high school in the Bronx, college in the Bronx, uh, City University of New York. Uh, then I had a short stint at Columbia, which uh, helped change my life because they opened the door to Wall Street for me. The, getting the MBA made a big difference to me. So it's been a, a real uh, good trip so far. Now, now not Lee, over yet. Not over yet. Not over yet. You're, you're, and we're going to get into that, but. Uh, you're what is called a value investor, and just and, and I understand what a value investor is, but could you explain, please explain to the audience? Sure. Well, you know, values in the eyes of the holder, but you know, what I essentially say is uh, the S and P is an index of 500 companies. On average, they're growing about five percent a year. Uh, they're basically uh, selling around three times the book value. They yield about two percent. They have about 40% of debt in their capital structure to the total capitalization. And for that, you're paying around 17, 18 times earnings. And so as a value investor, I'm looking for more growth or more earnings or more underlying asset value at a lower valuation. Another way of putting it is Ben and Graham, uh, Graham and Dodd hypothesized in their seminal text called Security Analysis written in 1934 that uh, basically stocks trade within a certain band of intrinsic value. 
that that value justified by the fundamentals. And I'm trying to find stocks that are cheap relative to intrinsic value, where I go long, and find stocks that are expensive against intrinsic value, where theoretically we can sell them short with the idea of buying them back at a lower price. But, you know, value investing is looking for you know, better growth, better earnings, better deals, at a discount to the market valuation. You, you mentioned uh, Benjamin Graham, and um, I've been a follower of hers, of his rather. And uh, could you tell us, didn't he, did, he, did he teach uh, Columbia? I, I think he yeah, did. Yeah, he was a professor at Columbia Business School. Uh, actually, the great Warren Buffett studied under him and attributes a lot of his success to studying under Ben Graham. And then I think in the mid-50s, he wrote a book uh, called The Intelligent Investor, which I think is uh, worth very worthwhile reading uh, to, the, to your audience, to the public. Okay, and um, you know now, now Lee, you've you've been uh, I've read a lot of stuff on you, and you've been you're you're really hardworking guy, and and a lot of people said you're one of the hardest working guys in the investment business. Can you share with our audience your typical day and uh, um and what your role is in in this well, business? Well, basically, I kind of uh, work a seventy-hour work week, uh, but you know I've always had this view, maybe wrong. I think it's right. You know, to be successful, you, you, it's all consuming. So the investment business was my vocation. It was my advocation because I enjoy investing. I enjoy finding something somebody else doesn't see, making a bet, and having Mr. Market prove me right. Uh, regretfully, sometimes it proves me wrong. Um, and it was a means of supplementing my income. So I'm kind of all in. Uh, I tell all the youngsters that I meet with, I do a lot of talks at colleges and schools and groups, and I say the way to be successful is do what you love, love what you do. Don't worry about money. Uh, uh, you know, Warren Buffett says go to work for somebody you admire uh, and respect, tap dance to work, and everything will take care of itself. So my typical work day, um, you know, when I'm up in New York, I became a Florida resident in 2011, but, you know, so I spend half the time up in the north and a little bit more than half the time down here in the south. But when I'm in New Jersey, uh, I, my alarm clock goes over 5.15 in the morning. And I spend an hour and 10 minutes going to the office, so I, you know, I get in around uh, 6.40. And I would say pretty much every night of the week I'm out with a different uh, group of uh, money managers swapping ideas or meeting with companies. And so it's a pretty full work day, but I enjoy what I do. I enjoy what I do. Yeah, that's what is your wife Toby? You've been how long? Have you and Toby been together for? Toby and I met in our sophomore year at Hunter College. I say with a smile on my face, I'd still probably be in school if it wasn't for her because <laughs> we met in our French class, and I wasn't particularly good at languages. And uh, we worked together in French, and we graduated in 1964, uh, May of 64. We got married in August of 64, so we've been married now about 53 years. And she was an educator most of her uh, adult life. She worked with learning disabled, neurologically impaired children. You know, essentially, you know, uh, birth defect kids that needed a break in life. And uh, she works with them. And well, it's been very, very rewarding for her. That's awesome. Now, Lee, the thing is that I know you have a, one of the best track records of any value investors, I think, uh, in the world, I guess. And um, uh, But it's Mr. Market isn't always kind to you. Uh, you got sh- shellacked, I think, in 2008, like everyone else. Um, uh, I, I got shellacked in 2008, and in 2014, uh, we had a big bet in energy, and we couldn't have been more wrong, and that's kind of screwed up my record. But, you know, it's a guy put a record together one day at a time, and uh, I don't deceive myself. Uh, you know, Bill Parcells said, you are what your record says you are, so the record is the record. I think from inception to date, which is 26 years. We've uh, beaten the S&P by about 300 basis points. 
net of all fees. It's okay. It's not the greatest record, but, you know, we work hard. We're honest. And, uh, you know, it's not an academic exercise because at the present time, over half the money we manage is general partner capital, meaning so we're eating our own cooking. Yeah. And it's a, it's an interesting environment, you know. Uh, a lot of people are critical of hedge funds these days, uh, uh, but you know, I, I, I kind of analogize back to 2008. In 2008, everybody was pointing a finger at either the insurance companies, the investment bankers, the banks, the brokers, um, uh, the government. And nobody was saying, well, the individual should be accountable for making their own decisions, uh, and to the extent that uh, they got themselves overextended financially, don't they bear some of the responsibility? Similarly, I think uh, we've been uh, uh, more bullish than most anybody uh, since 2008. Uh, I credit a lot of that to my partner, Steve Einhorn, who does excellent macro work on the market. And if I told you in 2009 that we were about to begin the longest economic expansion in the greatest bull market history, you probably would have me locked up. <laughs> yeah, we would have, yeah. Point, the point I'm trying to make is the individual that decided to be in the hedge fund in 2009 said, I want to be in an absolute return vehicle, not a relative return vehicle. Okay, and so, you know, if you're running a hedge fund and you have a hedge on or you're short, or you're not fully invested because you're trying to protect the investor capital, it's hard to keep up with a trended bull market. And so people are dissatisfied, but this this two cell change. You know, I remember in 1972, the Nifty, Nifty 50. I remember in 1987, the portfolio insurance. You know, there's fads and, and styles. And right now, you know, people want to be in the index fund. I happen to agree it makes sense to for very large capital, but absolute return vehicles and, uh, you know, uh, being in uh, managers that pick stocks one at a time and do intensive, detailed research will pay off over time. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, one one thing which I like about you, Lee, is that, um, and, and, and I think I sent you my books, Lee, and uh, but you just, did, yeah. yeah, you did, and you'll see, uh, I have a real problem with, you know, uh, the, a lot of this gambling is done with other people's money, um, and a lot, and a lot of mutual funds they have absolutely no. The managers have absolutely none of their capital in 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 these funds, which is I kind of I find it very shocking. But you eat your own cooking, am I correct? And could you explain oh, what correct. people? As I mentioned a moment ago, about fifty-two percent. We manage about three point seven billion. Of fifty-two percent of that is general partner capital. So we very much eat our own cooking. We lose more than anyone loses if we get it wrong. We make more than anyone makes. We get it right, and we're totally focused. That's awesome. Totally focused, and and it's it's an interesting environment. You know, it's not stocks aren't aren't cheap. I still think they represent the best house in the financial asset neighborhood, but the the, the, the neighborhood's gotten very pricey. Yeah, that's. Uh, I have a psychic here, Will Pierce, and he he just passed me a question, uh, Lee. Um, we know a lot. What is what do you do when you evaluate a stock? Because I mean, you're really a research guy. What does it take to evaluate a stock? Um, uh, for you and your partner Steve. Well, I you guess. know, Ben Graham, the intelligent investor, said you evaluate a management twice in the investment decision making process. So the first thing I do is I, I look at the record. What's the return on capital? What's the growth rate? What's the profit margins? Uh, how have they done relative to the competition? What's their market share? 
How insulated from competition are they? Do they have a moat around their business? So on and so forth. So I have a whole list of maybe 20, 30, 40 things I'm looking at. And then, of course, most important to me, I look at the price I'm paying for the story. You know, and sometimes you pay an excessive price for a story that's uh, very clear and crystal clear. And then I meet, we don't buy anything in our portfolio without meeting with managements. And then I look at a management in the eye and ask them questions, see how they respond to the questions. And so you have to, you know, they're on top of their game and they're fully engaged. And so it's, 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 it's a tedious process, you know. It's easier if you're a technician, you look at a squiggly line on a chart and if the line is going up, that's good. And if the line's going down, it's bad. And, uh, you know, we, we, we are much more intensively involved in our analysis. Um, and uh, uh, we, we, we tend to be more investors, not traders. Not that there's anything wrong with trading, but we tend to have a longer holding period than the typical hedge fund. More than half, well over half our asset base is taxable. So to the extent we can, we try to go long term. Uh, and, and get a preferential tax rate. Warren Buffett, I think 30 or 40 years ago, uh, in one of his annual reports, went through the hypothetical example of saying every year you picked that year's hot stock, you made 15%, sold the stock, and the next year you bought next year's hot stock, made 15%, sold it, as opposed to buying into a great company that compounded at 15% a year for many, many, many years. In the end of the 30 or 40-year period, you have thousands and thousands of times more money after tax than you would have had in the investing strategy than you would have had in the trading strategy. And so, you know, we tend to pay, pay attention to taxes as well. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, inter- in, in interrogating management and studying the financial figures, return on equity, return on capital, growth rate, profit margins, so on and so forth. So so what's the portfolio rate? I mean, your turnover rate, uh, Lee, roughly? I'd say about 25%. All right. So that, that's good. That's low because, I don't know, with a typical mutual fund, I guess, is like uh, – Actively traded mutual funds, I guess, is at least 100 percent, or yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, I guess if you go to indexation, I think uh, indexation uh, the turnover is less than five percent. Yeah. So um, now the thing is, okay, so you uh, grew up in the South Bronx. Your 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 dad was a plumber, and um, you put yourself through a Hunter College, and then to Columbia. I, and and you get how'd you get you well, get Hunter? I should point out the Hunter was only twenty four dollars a semester, <laughs> so we got largely a free education. Uh, and not only did I get a free education that was first class, I also met my wife for 53 years in my sophomore year. So I've made large contributions to Hunter and appreciation what they've done, uh, a large chunk of it dedicated to provide, providing financial aid to deserving students. Uh, you know, the um, uh, tuition today, I think, is closer to $6,000 a year and, uh, or a semester. And I, when I went, it was $24 a semester. Yeah, so, so you know. So, yeah. It's something. Now, Lee, how, how did you get, you know, Goldman Sachs is kind of like the, uh, uh, you know, it's the leading investment bank in the world. So how did you get your foot in the door at Goldman? Well, I really I attribute that to my education at Columbia. My finance, I, I, I'm a plain, simple guy, but I, I was a very attractive package in 1966. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I had a six-month-old child had a National Defense Education Act student loan paying my tuition, but I was Wall Street Journal Student Achievement Award. Uh, I was Beta Gamma Sigma, the National Business Honor Society, and I was straight A's in finance. And I was a very, you know, attractive package in a sense that I had a very directed interest. And uh, my finance professor at the time, uh, Professor Jack Wick, was a good friend of a gentleman who's deceased now, Bob McElfresh, who was the administrative head of the Goldman Sachs Research Department. And uh, Professor Zwick gave me a very strong endorsement, and I interviewed at Goldman. 
And I have to say, it was one of the lucky like decisions because back in '66, nobody understood at that time the market on the Dow was a thousand, and it would not exceed that level for I believe till 1982, so 16 years. But you know, you can say you measure the height of Wall Street by the number of crum- the amount of crumbling walls, you know, expansion. And so I had 16 job offers in 1966. Goldman was not the highest offer. But I liked the people I met at Goldman, and I accepted the offer, and it was a great decision because Goldman is about one of the very, very few firms, maybe the only firm, whose name did not change over the last 50-odd years. You know, I could have gone to work for Goodbody or Kuhn Loeb or Loeb Rhodes or White Weld, firms that were decent firms at the time, but for various reasons merged out of existence. So I went to a firm that uh, turned out to, to a powerhouse. It wasn't a powerhouse when I joined it. Uh, uh, I didn't make it a powerhouse, but we uh, we had a great team. We all worked together cooperatively, and it was a great success story, and I benefited from it. I'll never forget, you know, I got the call to be invited into the partnership in 1976. It was a Friday of the Thanksgiving weekend. I always took that Friday off to be with my uh, two sons and my wife, uh-huh. and John Whitehead and John Weinberg, two great gentlemen, uh, both deceased, unfortunately, called me up. And we say, we're sorry we're about to do what we're going to do this way, but you elected to take the day off. We're in the office working, but we want to invite you into the partnership. And Whitehead, in his typical style, said, we hope you understand you now have to start working. It wasn't like I wasn't (laughs) humping it for the prior nine years. But when they invited me in that day, they said to me, Goldman was completing the best year of its history. It was 1976. It was going to earn $40 million pre-tax. Well, wow. from 1976 is 40 million to the year I retired from Goldman, 1991. The earnings went from 40 million pre-tax to 1.8 billion pre-tax. Okay, with only one modestly down year. There was a year that the, the British government privatized uh, British Petroleum, and Wall Street got hooked on a, on a block. But uh, so I've been very lucky. I went to the right firm. You call that intuition, uh, uh, and then I, the firm just prospered. You know, if you're a partner. You share in the profits, and the profits went, like I said, $40 million to $1.8 billion. And my interest in the profits rose because the firm felt I was doing a good job, so my percentage interest rose over time. So I've, you know, I've lived the American dream, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been fabulous. And I would say Columbia helped get me on the trajectory. Not that it's right, but I would say that the odds of me getting in the Goldman from Hunter College was very limited. So, you know, Columbia gave me the skills and the um, exposure to get into Goldman, and that really changed my life. Now, question for you, uh, Lee. Um, This is one of the things. So, but back when Goldman was a partnership and uh, Lehman Brothers, I think they were the first ones to go public, but I think there was a lot. I mean, this is just me. I I think when when these investment banks, Wall Street banks, uh, they had a lot more of their own skin in the game, their own capital in in the game, and then. to me, it's kind of everything. Kind of all hell, heck is broken loose when, it, since as these companies. Well, go- you can come. There's a, a lot of look. When you go public, you have a responsibility to the public. There's a focus on quarterly earnings and stuff like that. But you know, Goldman's an excellent firm, and uh, they went public reluctantly. You know, uh, it was a long thought process. Uh, they wanted to permatize their capital. Uh, I mean, if you want to be negative, you say, well, they're using outside capital, they're taking more risk. I, I don't really think that's the case, but uh, it's, it's a fine firm. I have nothing to find critical. It was great in my career, and they do a terrific job in, in, in servicing their clients. 
Awesome. Now, what, I want to get, uh, uh, we're going to have to take a break in a little bit, uh, but then uh, we want to talk about your uh, charitable giving, the uh, Cooperman uh, Scholars Program. But I just have my my son just walked into the studio, Lee, so he's listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, uh, How he, old your son? He's 27. He's 27 yesterday, and he just moved. I got I got two of them. One's 51 and one's 48. Okay, mine's 27. And uh, believe it or not, Lee, he lives in Beijing, China. And I'm very well, proud of him, and uh, he's learned to speak Mandarin, and he, yeah, he, he was actually... That's a, that's a good thing for his future. You know, and um, so... Probably more functional than speaking Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So so anyhow, so I have my son here, and uh, and he's kind of blushing right now. What's, what's kind of your, uh, your mantra for young people? Because uh, w- w- obviously you speak to people. What do you tell young people starting out? Uh, a lot of things, you know. Uh, first of all, uh, when I hire somebody, I ask them, I require them to read a little parable about the gazelle and the lion. So I'll read it to you. It says, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. So I advocate engagement and hard work, okay? Um, you know, it's, a, it's that simple. Uh, you know, people will find the harder you work, the smarter you're going to get. Uh, the, the relevancy of that the gazelle and lion to my business is very simple. There are roughly speaking 10,000 mutual funds that will manage your money for 1% or less. And there's almost 10,000 hedge funds that have the audacity or the chutzpah to ask for some variation of 2 and 20 so if a client is going to give you money at 2 and 20 versus 1%, he has a right to expect more. When the market's high, figure that out and get defensively positioned. When the market's low, figure that out and get exposed to upside, etc. So you're constantly on the balls of your feet. You're constantly engaged. The fee structure puts pressure on you. You know, I am not interested in getting paid for mediocre performance. I want to deserve my performance. So... Number one, I tell the hard work. Number two, I tell them, I read to them uh, uh, an Andrew Carnegie column in 1900. Andrew Carnegie said, I wish to have as my epitaph, here lies a man, who I would put in now, or woman, who was wise enough to bring into his or her service men who knew more than he, so base or she. And so I, I tell people, don't be threatened by strong people. Be benefited by strong people. Surround yourself with the very, very best people. Share the loot with them equitably, uh, uh, fairly, and you'll benefit and you'll prosper. So uh, I say basically, um, you know, take care of people. Third, I basically, I say to the youngsters, no matter how much money you have, the one luxury you cannot afford is arrogance. Be nice to people. Make yourself available. William Lynn Phelps said, the first test of a gentleman, his respect for those who can be of no possible value to him. So be nice to people. Then I also preach engagement. Aristotle said, tolerance and apathy are the last virtues of a society. Be engaged. Stand for something. Okay? And then Henry Ford says, the best way to make money in a business is not to think too much about making it. Same kind of theme as a Warren Buffett. Go to work for somebody you respect and admire, tap dance to work. Don't go into a field just because you think you can make a lot of money. Go into a field where you have a love and an aptitude for it. And then at the end, uh, the one I like the best, I, you know, I, I, I read this quote many years ago. It stuck with me. 
And when I went to Google William Ward, there were a dozen of them, and I couldn't figure out which William Ward it was. But uh, it was a comment that I share with your audience because I think it's, it, it's so spot on. Before you speak, listen. Words hurt, okay? Before <laughs> you write, think. Before you spend, earn. Before you invest, investigate. Before you criticize, wait. Before you pray, forgive. Before you quit, try. Before you retire, save. Before you die, give. Okay? And I'm at that stage. I'm not contemplating death. I hope I live a long time. Uh, basically, uh, I'm at the giving stage. I've taken the giving pledge with Warren Buffett. Uh, uh, it wasn't Buffett who got me to do it, basically. Um, just my other, my other phone is ringing. Okay, good. Went to voicemail. I apologize. Oh. But, you know... Um, uh, I, met, uh, I figured out many years ago, there's only four things you could do with money. The first thing you could do with money is you could pleasure yourself and spend it on yourself. And if, I'm not, if you're not an art collector and you have a lot of money, you can't spend it on yourself. And I happen to be of the view that material possessions brings with them aggravation. So I like to keep myself, uh, my life simple. And my wife feels the same way. So we have what we want, but we don't want very much. The second thing you do with your money is you give it to your kids. But I think it's counterproductive if you have a lot of money to leave all your money to kids. You don't want to rob them of the ability to self-achieve. The third thing you can do is give your money to government, but only the fool gives the money to the government that doesn't have to give it. Best example is Warren Buffett, worth $60, $70 billion. He's giving it all away to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And the fourth thing you could do is you could recycle it back into society and try to make the world a better place. And that's what I've elected to do. So I've given away uh, very large sums of money the last five years, and I intend to give away all my money, um, not half. Uh, I, told, I told Warren... Uh, when I met with him, if you're talking to truly wealthy people, asking for half isn't asking for enough. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I mean that sincerely. Yeah. And nor is the request original. In other words, if you think about it or reflect upon it, in 1900, Andrew Carnegie said, he who dies rich dies disgraced. In 1930, Sir Winston Churchill says, you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. In 1961, when President Kennedy was inaugurated president, he said, uh, uh, ask not what your country could do for you, ask what you could do for your country. And then I told Warren, I said, Warren, I'm Jewish. They say in the Talmud, you measure men not by what he has, but what he gives. And uh, so, you know, my game plan is to give money to those organizations that have made a difference to my family in our lifetime and that are making a difference to uh, uh, other uh, people to improve the condition of their life. So you mentioned the Koopman College Scholars that I, I think can has the capacity to be my signature event. Okay. Lee, anyhow, so in 2010, you made the giving pledge with uh, to Warren Buffett and to Bill and Melinda Gates and to uh, Mike Bloomberg. T- tell us what you did. Well, you know, basically, the Giving Pledge has gotten a lot of publicity. Uh, you know, Warren and Bill and Melinda Gates have gone to a lot of people uh, to uh, get them to agree to give at least half their wealth uh, away uh, at death or over their lifetime to charitable causes. <clears throat> and I happen to have a dinner uh, in connection with that uh, solicitation at the offices of Mike Bloomberg of his foundation. So it was Bill and Melinda Gates, Mike Bloomberg, and Warren Buffett. And, uh, you know, I knew what I was going to do before the dinner because, you know, it's like a gambling <laughs> junket. You know, you go to Las Vegas, 
you know, <laughs> and you're getting comped in, you know that the casino expects you to gamble. So don't go to Las Vegas on a comp basis unless you're prepared to gamble. So you don't go to dinner and get solicited by Bill and Melinda and uh, Warren without the intention of saying yes. So, you know, I knew I was going to do it all along. And, um, you know, the difference is uh, I respect Warren enormously, but, you know, he's elected to give his money to Bill and Melinda Gates uh, in their foundation and let them give it away. Uh, My focus uh, with my family is to give it away ourselves uh, because we have a lot of things that we want to support. And I was beginning to mention before your your break uh, that uh, we have something called the Koopman College Scholars. Yeah, yeah. This was an idea. Actually, I came up with, uh, and uh, one of my few good ideas, I might add. (laughs) And you know, I think uh, you know these youngsters deserve an opportunity. So, Franklin and Marshall has devised a three-week free pre-college program where it explains these kids what to expect in college. So if you basically uh, show the initiative and enroll in this free three-week pre-college program, you live in Essex County, New Jersey, where I used to live. I spent 50 years of my life there. You are uh, academically qualified. I'm very big on equal opportunity. I'm not big on equal outcomes. There's some people who ought to be a mechanic or a carpenter or a plumber, and some people ought to be more in the academic world. But if you are academically qualified, and I have a board of about 10 volunteers that interview these kids, and uh, uh, then if if you fit all these requirements, you know, academically qualified, Essex County resident, uh, enrolled in the pre-college program by Franklin and Marshall. I give these kids up to $10,000 a year for six years to get a college degree. And I put $25 million in a fund, which is designed basically to provide a college education to 500 youngsters. And it's significant because it's shown that a, a, an individual with a college education, lifetime earnings are in excess of a million dollars more than an individual without a college education, forgetting also the benefits of self-esteem and having a better quality of life. And so we're into our fourth cohort. We have about 250 kids enrolled. And, um, you know, the statistics historically are very alarming. Uh, 35% of Newark High School kids go to college, but only 5% graduate. Only 5%, huh? Only 5%. Now, I told the people Oof. running my program, I'm not interested in throwing money down a rat hole. I've worked too hard for this money. You show me a dramatic improvement in the graduation rate, and I'll double down on my $25 million. So I think our first court was 72. 95% of the kids uh, are still in the program. So they're now into their second year of college, which so far is a dramatic improvement and makes me really excited. Wow, that's. I, I tear up when I meet with the kids. It's just uh, very emotional for me. That's, that's a great thing, uh, Lee. And um, you know, and the whole th- you know the funny thing is, is that um, I want to uh, uh, get into capitalism a little bit. And uh, I'm, you know, you wrote a letter <laughs> to uh, Barack or Barry Obama, as I say, in, in 2011, and because um, and uh, and you hit it, you nailed it, and. Um, and in the letter, you said, you know, you were kind of tired of, you know, getting beaten up uh, and that capitalism was not the source of our problems and actually is part of the solution. And, uh, and by the way, I don't know if you saw about it, that Obama took a $60 million uh, fee to uh, for the for the book rights. And uh, <laughs> so he, Whatever. you know, I mean, he's a, look, what, what, what motivated me to write him at that time? And he's a good man. 
Okay, there's nothing wrong with him, uh, but we have different philosophy. I just got the impression that he was trying to tell the 99%, the so-called 99%, they're being screwed by the 1%. Yeah. In reality, the 1% that I know, okay, spend more on the 99% than they spend themselves, whether it's Ken Langone, Stan Druckenmiller, Michael Steinhardt. Frankly, Lee Cooperman, you know, uh, I give away uh, much more to charity annually than I spend on myself. Not that I'm wanting, there's nothing I want, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't collect art and uh, I have a simple lifestyle and uh, I work. But um, so I try to explain to the president, you're depreciating the American dream. I said, I don't want to talk about myself, but, you know, here I am, son of a plumber. My my mother and father came from Poland, first generation born in this country, first generation get a college degree, largely public school-based education, start with nothing, make a great deal of money, take the giving pledge and giving it all back to society. That's the American dream, and this is what you should hold out to the 99%, that with luck and hard work, they can self-achieve. And uh, he just wasn't going down that path. And uh, unfortunately, he was dividing, but he was dividing. He was with the majority, dividing against the minority. We have a current president, unfortunately, who's dividing uh, as well. And, you know, it's, it's a problem. We have to work together as a society. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we need, and guys like yourself really need to, uh, are going to put a stand out, you know, because, you know, you're power of example. Because... Uh, because uh, Lee, you have achieved some success. People will listen to you, um, and uh, and you're kind of a you are a celebrity, uh, and so people well, will. I don't, I don't consider myself a celebrity. I just say that uh, with uh, it's been a great trip from my beginnings in the South Bronx to where I am today, and I should be an inspiration to all the youngsters that are listening to this program. And I say this sincerely: with an average IQ and a strong work ethic, and a heavy dose of good luck, it can go very far. I mean, PS75 is a great school I went to in the South Bronx, Morris High School in the South Bronx. I followed the advice of Horace Greeley, and I went west. I went to the West Bronx to Hunter College, <laughs> which is now called Lehman College. Oh, yeah, Lehman and, was it. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's, 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 it's having a life of uh, good luck, hard work, and uh, making the right decisions, you know. Uh, I, I, my son, my oldest son, I'm very proud of, you know, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford, and his best job offer at the time was the two-year analyst program at Goldman Sachs. And when he told me he was going to accept it, I said, you know, I don't know whether you're doing the right thing, because back then, you know, it was like indentured servitude. <laughs> you know, you, they they work you to the bone. I think there's been now, I think, a change that they give you a little bit of a life. But he called me up after four months. He came to visit. He said, can I come and see you? He comes to see me. He says, I'm going to quit. Would you be disappointed in me? I said, no. He says, I'm going to quit because I've been here four months. They have not given me one day off in four months. They called me up in the middle of the night to come into Xerox presentation booklets. I didn't get a Phi Beta Kappa degree from Stanford to Xerox presentation booklets. And I said to him, look, uh, uh, do me one favor. Tell the guy that runs a training program you're unhappy. He's not going to care, but he's got a boss. And at least when he reviews everybody in the training program, he'll properly portray that you're not crazy about it. So if you left, he would not be out in a lurch. Number two, basically, you understand the need to support yourself. You know, I'm not going to support you. Number three, that you have already fulfilled it 
uh, you would have asked me my opinion, which you've done. And number four, I told them about my story about dental school. <clears throat> Back in the mid-60s, and I think it may be the case today, I don't know, if you completed your major and minor in three years, you can count your first year of medical or dental school towards your fourth year of college and get a separate degree. So in the summer of 1963, I toiled very hard in, the physical, in the, uh, taking physical chemistry in the, in the, at the University of Pennsylvania in the summer of 63, finished off my major, and I enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania Dental School. And after eight days, I was wondering if I was pushing myself in the right direction. Now, God must have been watching over me. <laughs> it was a traumatic time in my life because, <clears throat> you know, it sounds very simple, but I had paid the tuition for a year. I bought instruments that were now useless if I didn't stay in the dental program. I paid my room and board for a year. My father, may rest in peace, was walking around saying, my son, the dentist. Yeah. And I had to go back. I had to go to the dean of the dental school who put me on a guilt trip. He says, Mr. Cooper, how can you know after eight days you deprived the 101st applicant of a dental education? I was not sophisticated enough to realize it was somebody in the wait list who could have been called up after eight days and been admitted. And it was a great dental school, so he would have gone and they were fine. The only one that really appreciated the decision was the dean of uh, Hunter College who had to give me permission to re matriculate back into college undergraduate, and he did, and he's a very courageous decision. <clears throat> I had all electives available to me. I took 10 courses in economics, got 10 A's, and had the distinction of majoring in chemistry, minoring in math and physics, but graduating with honors in economics. I never looked back. I found what interested me, and it fits into what I, as I said to you, I tell the kids, do what you love, love what you do. That's the way of ensuring your success, with a, with a bunch of luck along the way as well. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is the... Um it's wonderful advice. Now, I just kind of a uh, general question, what you see ahead, uh, Lee, because um, one of the things which I just had a question uh, uh, for you is that um, uh, one of the problems I see in the country now is the debt. What do, you, what do you think about the debt problem? I mean, we have $21 trillion in our $20 trillion in U.S. debt, and then we have, uh, uh, heck, we have our own Greece and our own backyard. We have Puerto Rico, which defaulted on $72 billion and yeah. Uh, there ultimately will be a problem, but, you know, in my business, I have to have a sense of timing. And two highly respected gentlemen uh, by the name of Henry Fowler, who was former Secretary of the Treasury, who's deceased, and Pete Peterson, who's very much alive, a real, real gentleman. Uh, Joe Fowler and Henry uh, and Pete Peterson were very concerned citizens. And in the early 70s, they paid out of their own pocket for substantial full-page ads in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, alerting the Congress and the public to the evils of the budget deficit and the trade deficit. Yep. That's 45 years ago. What is the consequence of the budget deficit? We have the lowest borrowing rates in the history of the world. So who knows how it's going to turn out. I would assume ultimately there will be a crisis. Uh, I generally tend to think that the crisis is not in the same crisis you had before. It's a different kind of crisis. So my guess is the next crisis, when it hits, and who knows how many years it's into the future, will be in public sector finance, that the government will find difficulty in financing itself, and interest rates will go up quite dramatically, and it's not a healthy situation. And we don't have <coughs> proper leadership in the country. We have a system of leadership at a crisis, and we're living too comfortably with current policies. And until we have some kind of crisis to stimulate leadership, we'll, we'll go on. And I'd say that uh, 
to me, what I'm watching carefully, you know, is uh, bear markets don't come about and recessions come about out of immaculate conception. There <laughs> tends to be, you know, conditions that lead to that. So, you know, you, you tend to have accelerating and problematic inflation. You have a hostile Fed. The market smells an oncoming recession. Uh, you have investor exuberance. You have speculative valuation or some kind of significant geopolitical event hits you out of the blue. Now, the last one you can't forecast. It's a, you know, it's a Cuban Missile Crisis. It's just President Kennedy going after the steel industry. It's a, something goes wrong with a North Korean missile launch, something like that. But of the things you can forecast, uh, the conditions that precede bear markets and recessions are not present. So you'd have to say that you know the market is still in a zone of okay. It's not cheap. Uh, but relative to interest rates, it is cheap. I'd rather take my chance in a common stock than I would in a uh, 10-year government bond yielding a little over 2% or short-term rates yielding 1%. I could find plenty of stocks that measure up quite attractively relative to those discount rates. Yeah, so you would agree, though, and I've been researching this lead for a number of years, is that the government pension plans, i.e., if you look at Illinois or Kentucky or Puerto Rico, or you're you uh, you still have a home, I guess in Jersey, New Jersey, whatever. Uh, it, it's it's this government debt. I I just uh, no no look. I, uh, Chris Christie, um, you know, walked into a union hall. This is a year or two ago to meet with the firemen and the policemen. And when he walked in, they started booing him uncontrollably. And finally, he shouted him down. He said, "Listen, give me a chance to explain to you what I'm saying. If you don't." I guarantee you, in a decade, you have no pension plan. But if you listen to me, you'll have a little bit less, but you'll have a pension plan. We have to get realistic. We have to get realistic. You know, I believe in the progressive income tax structure. I actually believe in my brother's keeper. Okay, I believe rich people should pay more. But the vast bulk of taxes paid in this country are paid by wealthy people. And what we have to do as a nation is coalesce around the question, what should the maximum tax rate be on wealthy people? Yeah. You ask a typical politician, he's, it's a bullshit answer. He says less. <laughs> okay? You ask Paul Krugman, he'll probably say 70%. You ask Bernie Sanders, he'll probably say 90% for a marginal tax rate. Now, a guy I respect, I've mentioned his name more than once in these, this conversation, Warren Buffett, I asked him this question, I think, three years ago. He said, if you make over a million dollars a year, 35%. If you make over... $5 million, you're 40%. I could live with that. The problem is you cited New Jersey or New York or California. Between state and local taxes and federal taxes or Obamacare taxes, you're well past that. And it becomes a philosophical issue. You know, I'd rather give away my money to needy people. I don't want to give it to the government unnecessarily. And it gets to a certain point where the tax rate is just morally wrong. So I don't know what the right number is. I would say personally, if I could give half my money to the government to provide the taxpayer with the services and half uh, for myself, that that strikes a balance that I could live with. Yeah, and you're doing it through foundations, so I mean, uh, which is smart. So you're kind of controlling it, and um, or you know, well, I'm giving. You no, know, not really. Everybody says to get tax deduction. If you don't give away the money, you have. Uh, 50 cents left. If you give away the money, you got nothing left. You know? <laughs> but basically, I just feel it's a moral imperative to give back to society and give back to the system. 
So, you know, whether it's Hunter College, where I got a free education and met my wife for 53 years, whether it's uh, Columbia University that opened the door to Goldman Sachs, St. Barnabas Medical Center, where we just donated a major wing that just opened up, beautiful job, uh, whether it's the Koopman College Scholars, whether it's Robin Hood, whether it's uh, something I have called the Koopman Family Fund for Jewish Future, where I send kids to Birthright Israel to discover their roots. You know, there's, uh, there's, there's just so many worthy causes that uh, should be supported. And well, I have a, yeah, yeah. Well, Lee, it's, it's been, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, you listen to uh, Portsmouth Community Radio. Our guest today has been Leon Cooperman, uh, founder and CEO of Omega Advisors and uh, Lee, we can't thank you enough. Look, in an offline, I'm going to give you a suggestion on a, one charity, which I, I think it w- w- would vet your process. But um, okay. I can't. I'm I can't. Of them, but be, feel free to call me. Well, well sure. thank you. I can't thank you much. I, I may take you up on I, that. I hope it was helpful to your audience. Well, well, thank you very well, much. Well, God bless you and Toby, and uh, keep Good. pushing back the frontiers of ignorance, Lee. And uh, we'll do this again sometime. Okay. Thank you very much. God bless. Bye bye. This has been The Economic Warrior with your host, Barry James Dyke. Broadcast live at WSCA Portsmouth Community Radio. Engineered by Phil Kleiger. If you have any questions about today's show or need an ally in conquering the battleground of finance, contact the warrior himself at barryjamesdyke.com. Who are the warriors?